0: Luke chapter 11.33-36 Luke 11.33 No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it away in a cellar, nor under a peck measure, but on the lampstand, in order that those who enter may see the light. The lamp of your body is your eye. When your eye is clear, your whole body also is full of light. But when it is bad, your body also is full of darkness. Then watch out, that the light in you may not be darkness." If therefore your whole body is full of light, with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. After confronting the crowds, and especially the Pharisees and Sadducees in the crowds, in the previous passage, about them being a wicked generation, and seeking maliciously for a miracle, not sincerely, but maliciously, as skeptics and critics of Christ, he now explains that there's only two paths. There's only two ways to understand what is true and and what is not, and that depends on understanding, or as he says here, the eye, the eye that is able to receive the light of the lamp. That eye, or the way that we intake the truth, is of great significance. Whatever information we intake, we bring into ourselves. That is of critical importance. That's what he's explaining with this contrast. So he uses an analogy. Let's first explain what he's saying here and then see some practical implications of it. Verse 33, no one after lighting a lamp puts it away in a cellar, correct? Nobody puts it down in a a dark place. After he lights the lamp, he doesn't put it away where it is of no use to him. Well, if he were going to the cellar, of course, it could be of use to him. But no one just lights a lamp and then puts it away in some dark corner where nobody can use it. The same thing, he says, nor under a peck measure, not under a basket either. You don't light a lamp and then put something over it to smother and cover whatever you just lit. You want it exposed and open so that you can benefit from the light. You can see where you're going. So he says, but put it on the lampstand in order that those who enter may see the light. When you enter a house, when you enter a room, wherever you enter, you need light in order to be able to see. Otherwise, you're going to be walking here there, bumping into objects, falling and tripping, and you might not see what's in front of you. You might run into something and hit your face against the wall. Whatever. We need light to enter the room and to enter safely, comfortably. That needs to happen. Therefore, verse 34, the lamp of your body is your eye. The lamp of your body is your eye. What is it, therefore, that he's saying by this? He's saying that our eyes are the source for the light to enter and radiate and benefit our body. He's saying the whole body is benefited by what the eyes see and what the eyes do. When your eye is clear, when it is clear or healthy, there's no speck in it, there's no log in it, there's nothing that's obstructing your eye, then your whole body also is full of light. It benefits your body so that you can see where you're going. You're not obstructed at all. But when it is bad, when it is unhealthy or bad, it's injured, your body also is full of darkness. And we know that to be true. Everybody knows that to be true. We know that to be true every day because we blink many, many times a day and we sleep every day. So we know that when it is dark or when we close our eyes, we can't see. And that impacts the rest of our body. Verse 35, then watch out that the light in you may not be darkness. Watch out. Watch out is a warning. He's saying, keep guard. Be on guard. Don't be deceived. Don't be duped. Don't be misled by anybody or anything that might (coughs) present itself as light or might obstruct your eye from seeing seeing what you need to see. Don't let that happen, because if that happens, then there will be darkness. 36. If therefore your whole body is full of light with no dark part in it, it shall be wholly illumined, as when the lamp illumines you with its rays. When we have a light source coming into our body that is healthy, that is clear, able to see, then it's going to benefit the rest of us all of us, so that we can proceed as we need to proceed. It illumines us with its rays and we are wholly illumined. No dark part in it. Well, what are the implications of what Jesus is saying here? The problem with the scribes and the Pharisees and the crowds is um, in, in a few ways we can explain. One, they do not rely... On the Bible alone. The Bible alone is not their sole authority. Their sole authority is not the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation. What they like to do is to consult one another, and if it is the scribes, or if it's the scribes, Pharisees, and the Sadducees, these would be akin to our denominational leaders of major churches, these would be akin to professors in academia, in Christian universities and Christian seminaries, that's the way those w- people would be. They would be the officials that have the authority to overrule and to oversee. They have control of the money. They have control of people's lives and thoughts and actions. They have the power to interpret the Bible and then to apply it to the people. And often they do that to exploit the common people. That's what goes on throughout all of Religion it goes on in every religion of the world it also happens within Christianity. it was happening in Judaism at the time of Jesus. it happens everywhere because it's human nature to for those who have power to exploit those who don't have the power. So what would the Pharisees and the Sadducees do as Jesus said in Matthew fifteen Matthew fifteen one to twenty he described how they would use the traditions of men to invalidate the word of God. They would use the traditions of men because if they are having high positions, then obviously they will be infatuated and intoxicated by their own wisdom. Would they not? When people rise to the top, often it is hard to remove pride from them. It's very rare to find somebody who is a leader who is not proud. It's hard to find that because they have authority. They have a lot of people respecting them. They, everybody knows their name. Everybody, uh, he ha- controls the money, the budget, and so on like that. That's what goes on when people rise to the top. They write books. They're called to speak. They're, they're called to address thousands of people. You know, So it, their pride wells up within them. So naturally, at that point, they want people to listen to them, to the articles they write, to the books they write, and to the lecterns that they conduct in front of students and in front of crowds. They want that kind of attention, and when they do that, they're drawing people away from the Bible. And then when they draw people away from the Bible with their own inventions and fabrications, what will happen? They undermine the Bible. People become ignorant of the Bible And they don't know that what this professor is saying or what this pastor is saying actually contradicts the Bible. They don't know because they don't know what's actually in the Bible. They don't know partly because their professors and pastors are not teaching the Bible. And partly because the common person who attends religious services does not have it within him to say, wait a minute, let me go pick up a Bible, right? I can go pick up a Bible and start reading it and figure it out myself and see if what that pastor or or professor said actually is in the Bible. Whatever the subject is, they don't do that. So people become misled by the traditions of men, which are manifested, like I said, in articles, in books, in speeches, in sermons that deviate from the Bible, do not reference the Bible, do not care to interpret the Bible carefully. That's what happens. That's where we have traditions of men invalidating and contradicting the word of God. In Ecclesiastes chapter 12, in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, Solomon has given us warning about this matter. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. He says 12 verse 11. 11 to 14. The words of wise men are like goads, and masters of these collections are like well driven nails. They are given by one shepherd. But beyond this, my son, be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The conclusion, when all has been heard, is fear God and keep his commandments, because this applies to every person, because God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. In verse 11 he says, "The words of wise men are like goads." The words of wise men, that is another expression for the Bible. He's talking about the scriptures, the words of wise men, and they are like goads. Goads or or the, these objects that are used by cattlemen in order to goad the cattle to go in a certain direction or not to go in a direction. That's the way the Bible is. That implies that we need to be goaded. We as people need to be goaded. But masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. The master of the collection of the Bible, the words of the Bible, we are like well-driven nails. We are sturdy, we are reliable, we are immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, as the Apostle says in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight. That's the way... We are, if we are masters of the collections of the words of God, that is in the Bible, Genesis to Revelation. And he says, they are given by one shepherd, the good shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd, Psalm 23, 1. They are given by him. All of these words are given by him, even though the means, the instrument that God used was holy men, prophets and apostles to write those words. They are given by the one shepherd in heaven. Verse 12, but beyond this, my son, beyond this, beyond the Bible, be warned. That's what Jesus said. Watch out. Be warned. The writing of many books is endless, and excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. The writing of many books is endless. Isn't that not true? Especially now in the age of the internet. Remember when the search engines first came about, everybody would be amazed that you type in a word or a phrase and they would say uh, such and such million or tens of millions or hundred million hits from this expression showed up. That's amazing that I could do all this research. Well, who's gonna do all that research? What's the point of telling us you have that many in the first place? Who's gonna actually do all that? Who's gonna actually read all of those posts and articles and books? Who's going nobody's gonna do that. So what's, what's the point? But at least the point, we should realize, it's, it's endless. There's no point. What value is it that many people have commented? Who cares if, if Joe Christian over here, or, or Mohammed over there, or Krishna uh, uh, Murthy over there, has written something about God? Who cares? What we need to care about is what the Bible says, the Word of God says, not what they say. That's why he says it's endless. And excessive devotion to uh, to books is wearying to the body. It can harm you. It will harm you. And there are many people who have bodily problems because they were devoted to books. Books. Not the Bible. He's talking about books outside the Bible. Those resources will infiltrate your soul and produce darkness. Now, Solomon in the Bible does not mean you cannot benefit from other resources. What it's warning against is focus and devotion to those. Notice that word, excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. It's not saying consultation of books is wearying. It's saying excessive devotion to books is wearying to the body. Excessive devotion. Because there will be for all of us, the necessity to consult a teacher. Correct? All of us need a teacher to consult. Whether that teacher is oral or written, we need a teacher. And many times we need it both ways. We need an oral teacher, somebody verbally to express what the Bible says, and then also in book form. We need both of them. And even the Bible understands that. The Bible knows that there are pastors, First and 2 Timothy and Titus, Those letters of the Bible teach that there should be pastors teaching the Bible. Obviously, when the pastor is teaching, he's going to be using his mouth to explain. That's a source outside of the Bible. In the same way, that those, those pastors can write what they have said so that it's available to other people. The issue is not the use of other sources. The question is excessive devotion to them. Are we spending three and a half minutes with the Bible every day? But then 30 minutes or three hours with other books for the rest of the day? That's where the problem is. We need to focus on what the Bible says, not what everybody else says. The Bible is our authority. Then, somebody may ask, well, if we're supposed to focus on the Bible, and there are people teaching us the Bible, what is the the approach that we should have to what we hear? What is the approach we should have to what we hear? And that answer is found in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11. Acts 17, verses 10 and 11. The Apostle Paul has been going from place to place, preaching and teaching the gospel, He has been to Thessalonica. Now he is at a city called Berea. Verse 10. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. We note here that they enter the synagogue of the Jews. This is their custom, to go from place to place and first go to the Jews to preach to them. Some will believe and others will not. In this case, they they are commended, verse 11. These were more noble-minded, more reputed, more honorable than the ones that they encountered in the previous city of Thessalonica. Why is it that one group of people can be compared to another in this case, and the second group is better than the first group? In what way? They received, he explains, for they received the word with great eagerness. Paul and Silas are preaching and teaching, they receive it with great eagerness. They're not skeptical, they don't have a sour attitude. They don't think that, that, that they are superior and better than Paul and Silas. They just are receiving it with great eagerness because they're talking about the Bible. They're talking about the word of God. So they are very eager to know what does the Bible say? What are Paul and Silas teaching and what does it actually say? Further, it says they were examining the scriptures daily. Examining. When we think of an exam, we don't think of a casual task, do we? When we think of an exam and those who are examining others, we think of a serious task. We think of a task that makes the difference between a good student and a bad student. It tests the abilities of the student, does it not? So in this case, they are examining the scriptures daily. They are checking seriously what they hear eagerly, they are checking seriously carefully, methodically, in the Bible, and the object of their examination, the Bible. They're checking the Bible. Notice, they didn't go and say, hey, Paul, rabbi, rabbi Jonathan, or Rabbi Kushner, or Rabbi so-and-so said, and let's go read their books and figure out what you just said. They're not comparing and contrasting Paul to another rabbi, another teacher, they're not doing that. They're saying, okay, Paul, you said that and you showed us. Now we're going to double check. We're going to go here and we're going to examine in the Bible because if it's in the Bible, in the scriptures, then we're going to believe what you preached. But if it's not in the Bible, we're not going to believe what you preached is the implication. They don't care what all the other teachers and professors say. They want to know what the Bible says because what the Bible says is what God says they did it daily also. Daily. They didn't do it weekly. They didn't do it monthly. They didn't do it twice a year on Christmas and Easter. They did it daily. They wanted to know every day, what does the Bible say? What does it say on the things I'm dealing with, on the things I'm, I'm hearing, what my problems are, where I need wisdom? What does the Bible say every day And finally, to see whether these things were so. Paul and Silas were excellent teachers, preachers, missionaries. Paul and Silas. The Apostle Paul. And yet, they are commended in checking whether these things were so, even though Paul said them. They didn't say, oh, it's Paul. Therefore, we're going to accept everything immediately without double-checking, without reading the Bible ourselves, without studying the Bible. They didn't say that. They didn't say that. They checked what Paul said. They, are, they were very unlike the people of today. The people of today, if their pastor says something, immediately they believe it. Especially if the pastor has a large following. Oh yeah, he must be right. How can 1,000 people be wrong? He must be right. How can 10,000 people be wrong? He must be right. He is the Pope. He he can't be wrong. He's the Archbishop of Canterbury. He can't be wrong in the Church of England. He can't be wrong. And on and on and on. No, they can indeed be wrong. They're not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul supersedes them tremendously. There's no way that the Apostle Paul can be compared to the current Pope or the Archbishop or any pastor or minister in any other church. There's no way. So we should be double-checking everybody else that we hear. We should be checking what the Bible says because if we don't double-check, then we are allowing darkness to infiltrate our eyes and ruin our whole body. We can't let that happen. We have to know the Word of God, what the Scriptures teach, not what people say, but what the Scriptures teach. Then, we ought to use whatever is in the Bible as a test. 1 John, 1 John 4, 1 to 6. 1 John 4, 1 to 6. Beloved, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God, he who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the Spirit of Truth and the Spirit of of error. Verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit. Every spirit, and by spirit he means the influence that is behind the people who preach and teach. Don't believe every spirit, every influence of the spiritual world that is upon the people who actually preach and teach. Don't believe them all but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. We're supposed to test. That means that whatever they say has to be cross-examined by what's in the Bible. See what the Bible says about whatever they're teaching, about God, about people, about morality, whatever it may be. Check what the Bible says. Why? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Many false prophets. One of the perennial false teachings throughout history is the nature of Christ. Who was Jesus Christ? Was he the Christ, the Messiah, which is God in human flesh? Was he that or not? Was Jesus of Nazareth both God and man, perfect man, at the same time. Did he have a divine nature and a sinless human nature at the same time? Throughout history, many false prophets have compromised one or both of those doctrines, either the divine nature or the human nature. They have contradicted. And all the implications that come from those contradictions, they have done so. He says in verse 3, that this is the spirit of the Antichrist. The Antichrist. And it's already in the world, this spirit. But we, we are from God. We have overcome the world because the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. He who is in us is the Holy Spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. The world has the devil. The devil controls the world. Ephesians 2, 1-3 says the prince of the power of of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That's the devil. The devil is at work in the world to contradict and to conflict with the spirit of God who is in us. The Holy Spirit who dwells in us fights with the devil in the world. But who is going to be the victor? We are. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. With the Holy Spirit's help and with consultation uh, with the Word of God, we overcome the world. So they are from the world, verse 5, and the world listens to them. They speak like the world, they're from the world, and the world listens to them. When he says the world, he's talking about the vast majority of people. The vast majority of people will listen, will listen to the world, will listen to the prosperity preachers of the world, they will listen to them because that's where all the good is, the worldly goods. That's where all the money is. That's where all the fame is. That's where all the comfortable words are. You all are nice people, you know. I could not not have a nicer group of people to be pastor over. You know, uh, well, I think about you all the time. You know, when I'm at home, when I'm playing my, with my children, I think about you all the time. I really, really love you. That, that's how, how endearing you are to me. That, these are the kinds of flattering words that they say. Not that you can never say nice words about your church people. Of course you should. But they flatter them. They flatter them and they flatter each other. So they speak that way. And the world listens to them. But verse 6. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The test is, when you know the true word of God and those who are faithfully teaching that true word of God, then those are the people that you should listen to. Don't listen to those who deviate from the word of God, but those who are consistent with the word of God. We must do so all the time. Let's further show where our source is. How is it that we can actually test and show people what they need to believe? That's found in Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter five eleven to fourteen. Hebrews five eleven to fourteen. The apostle has just explained the high priesthood. And he has mentioned Melchizedek. Melchizedek. The name itself is a long name and difficult to pronounce. But the person is even, to many readers of the Bible, an obscure figure. How is it that the apostle is going to address his readers in the proper way? How can he? He has to first admonish them. He has to first chastise them before he can explain and that's why he says what he does in verse 11 concerning him melchizedek we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of god and you have come to need milk and not solid food for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food is for the mature, who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. He tells them that he wants to say a lot about Melchizedek, but it's hard. It's hard to explain. He doesn't say it's hard to explain because it's hard to understand. He says it's hard to explain because they have become dull of hearing. Dull of hearing. They're insensitive. Perhaps they are busy and preoccupied and they don't have a concern. They don't care. Perhaps they have heard preachers many, many times and they are insensitive to what they say. But he says in verse 12, "...by this time you ought to be teachers." A significant amount of time has passed. We don't know exactly, but at least 10 years, if not 20 or 30 years, have passed since they first heard the gospel. At at least 10 years, if not 20 or 30 years, have passed since they first heard the gospel. And he says, by this time you ought to be teachers. By teachers, he does not mean everybody should be a teacher in the church or a pastor in the church. He doesn't mean it that way, though a few of them should have been. He means that you should understand the truths of the Bible enough to be able, if you're a parent, to communicate it to your children, at least in that regard. Or if you have a friend who has not heard the gospel or who has basic questions about the gospel, you should, by now, be able to answer those questions to your friends, be able to teach your friend, open up the Bible, and and turn to some simple places and show them, go and read the passage with them and be able to explain the gospel so that they can be saved from their sins. You should be able to do that. You ought to be teachers in some sense by now. However, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God and you have come to need milk and not solid food. But rather, at this point, you are only able to drink milk, not solid food, using the imagery of a baby. He's saying, you are still a baby. You're still like a one-month-old baby. You're still like a six-month-old baby. You're not old enough in the faith to be eat, to be able to eat solid food. You understand very, very basic things, and you have not gone beyond that to solid food. And if you are only partaking of milk, the simple things of the Bible, the simple and the sweet things of the Bible, you're not accustomed to the word of righteousness because you are a babe or an infant. You're still a little baby. You're not accustomed to the word of righteousness. The word of righteousness is the Bible, the righteous word of God, the true faithful word of God. You're not accustomed to it. You don't have any practice in it. And when some of it is put into your mouth, you want the milk and you spit out the solid food. That's the way you are. He says in 14, solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. How does one become mature? Solid food is for the mature. One becomes mature by practice and training. By practice and training. These are athletic terms, are they not? Who who is going to win the gold medal without practice and training? Nobody. Nobody is going to be the fastest runner or the strongest thrower or anything else. Nobody's going to be that way unless he has practice and training. If athletes do that to win a perishable wreath, if they do it for that, Why don't we do it for something that's imperishable, that's eternal, that will last forever and ever and ever? Why are we so preoccupied with things that should not consume us? Why is it? Why is it that we let bad influences come into our life, whether it's music, whether it's movies, whether it's our friends, we call them our friends, but really we know they are foes. If, if they are bringing us down, they're really our enemies. They're not our friends. They're our enemies. Why do we let the, the media, why do we let the internet, why do we let social media, why do we let our school friends, why do we let our workmates, why do we let even in many churches, the people in the church, Live wickedly yet claim to be Christian. Why do we let these kinds of influences, these kinds of people, inundate us? Why are we persuaded by them? We have to resist them because that's what an athlete does, right? Does the athlete eat wrongly, drink wrongly? Does the athlete sleep 12 hours a day or 16 hours a day? Does the athlete just sit on the couch? hours upon hours. Does the athlete do these kinds of things? No. He gets rid of any kind of encumbrance, any kind of inhibitions, any kind of, of traps that will cause him not to succeed in being a superb athlete. He gets rid of those things. And why is it necessary for us to get rid of those things? Because we have need to have our senses trained to discern good and evil. Our senses need to be trained. Our spiritual senses need to be trained to know the difference between good and evil. If we don't have the training, how will our senses know? Correct? This happens in various other um, professions in life. It happens to the car mechanic. The car mechanic... When he hears a noise, quite often, he can boil it down to one problem, perhaps two or three problems. If he hears a noise, he'll know for sure it's not the tires, it's the engine. Something like that. When he hears a noise, he will know because he's been trained. His senses have been trained. He will know the difference. How about the bank teller? Doesn't the bank teller get trained on what is authentic, genuine currency and what is counterfeit currency. And often when the bank teller is shuffling the money in his hands, he can tell when something unusual is in his hands and his fingers will tell him this doesn't feel right. And he'll look down and he'll see there's a counterfeit bill in his hand. That often happens to bank tellers. The same thing with us spiritually. When we know what is in the Bible, we will be trained we will know the difference between good and evil oh jesus didn't die for your sins no 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 you jesus died on the cross but you need to not only believe that he died on the cross but you actually have to work for your salvation you have to work for your salvation you need to repent you need to be baptized you need to become a church member you need to tithe you need to come to all the meetings you, you need to uh, go out every Thursday night, knocking on the doors. You need to do this and that. They add a thousand things to the list. They say, believe in Jesus, but also do all this other stuff. Then you'll get to heaven. If you get to heaven. They'll say things like that. They'll say, you, you believe in the Trinity? You believe that Jesus, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have divine nature? You believe that? Well, that's not in the Bible. Well, how will you be able to know that it is is in fact in the Bible, that the Bible calls the Holy Spirit God in Acts chapter five, verses three and four? How will you know unless you read it? At least you read it once or twice or 10 times because you read the Bible regularly and you'll say, that doesn't sound right. The Bible says this and that about Jesus being Lord and being God and people worship him. How can they say nobody's supposed to worship Christ? Nobody's supposed to pray to Christ. Why did Jesus say then, in John 14, 14, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Why did he say that? He said that because you can pray to him. Because, you can, because he possesses a divine nature. He is God. So when you hear things, you'll know the difference. Or what about, can a believer in Jesus Christ marry an unbeliever whether the person who is an unbeliever claims to be a Christian or whether he claims to be a Hindu, a Muslim, a, an atheist, an agnostic, can a believer marry an unbeliever? If you didn't read the Bible, if your preacher and pastor didn't tell you, how will you know? And then you'll think in your head, oh, well, I want to marry, uh, l- let's say it's a woman, and a Christian woman, well, this is a nice young man and... He, he's got some good values. He's got a good job. Um, I've, I've watched him the past uh, month or two. I'm going to connect with him, and we're going to get married. Oh, even though he doesn't care about the things of God, even though he might be a Muslim, or he might be a Hindu, or an atheist, it doesn't matter. He's a good man, so I'm going to marry him. Is that right or wrong? No, it's wrong. We can go on and on with many examples, moral examples, sexual examples, whatever they may be. You can go on and on. The question is, what does the Bible say so that we can discern between good and evil? Now, here's the other problem. Remember, Jesus, when he said light and darkness, he wasn't just using daily tangible examples to lighten the mood. When he said light and darkness, he actually meant you're on God's side or Satan's side. Or as it says here in Hebrews 5.14, you're either on the side of good or you're on the side of evil. It's either good or evil. This is what we fail to do often. We fail to categorize our behavior, our values, and the values of others, the behavior of others, the words of others, as either good or evil. We want to, we want to kind of sprinkle holy water on everything everybody does and say, okay, I do the sign of the cross, I sprinkle holy water on it, and everything's just fine. I'm not going to do anything to say, I'm not going to say anything, I'm not going to disrupt anything, I'm just going to leave it alone, everything's just fine. It's not that bad anyways, so it's okay. I'll just leave it alone, we'll maintain our friendship, we'll maintain our relationship, and everything will be just swell. That's the way we think. Many people think that way. The Bible doesn't. It puts things in categories. You're either on God's side or Satan's side. Colossians 1, 12 and 13. He delivered us from the domain of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Right? The the difference between darkness and light. Between the son of God and Satan. That's what he says there. He's saying here, it's good and evil. We have to recover this... Belief. We have to inculcate this belief into our thinking that it is either good or evil. It says in Psalm 119, 119, verse 104, 119, 104, from your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Understanding Isn't that what we said about the eye? The eye is the lamp of the body. Where are we getting understanding from? Here it says, David is praying. He says, I get understanding from your precepts, from your words. I get them. Therefore, I hate every false way. Once he knew the truth, it caused within him to have that seed of truth within him so that it welled up. And when he saw evil, he was repulsed by evil. He was revolted by the evil that he saw. And he says, I hate every false way. Implication, he loves the true way and he hates every false way. That's what happened to him. Is that not what happened to the Apostle Paul? Acts chapter 17, verses 16, till the end of the chapter 34 says that Paul was waiting in Athens And while he was waiting, he went into the city of Athens, and his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding the city full of idols. He was walking around in Athens, waiting for his companions who were traveling and coming and meeting up with him there. And while he was waiting, he saw idols everywhere. If you go to some parts of the world, you will see on every street corner and even along the way shrines little shrines sometimes uh, temples big temples with idols in them you'll see the travelers whether they're walking they're cycling even in their cars they will stop they'll pause they'll do a little bit of worship and then they'll go on their merry way they'll bow to the idol they'll pray to the idol and this is as many church buildings we have in the United States there as there are that many idols and shrines in various countries of the world, and even more than church buildings that we have. And this is what people do. This is what the Apostle Paul saw in Athens, in pagan Athens. He saw that, and it bothered him. It provoked him. It irritated him to the point of anger and action. Anger and action. So what does he do then? He goes into the marketplace and starts to reason with the people. Why are you doing this? What's going on with you? Well, And he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection to them. And that's what brought them to send him to the Areopagus where he explained more about the gospel and some people believed in the gospel. It provoked Paul. What happened when Nehemiah saw that they were breaking the Sabbath? Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah the governor of the Persians. He's a Jew and he sees his countrymen breaking the Sabbath, uh, buying and selling on the Lord's day, bringing in their shipments of goods, carrying the burdens and all the products. And what does he do? He confronts them. He reprimands them. And he curses them. He even uh, strikes them. And he even pulled out their beards. Nehemiah even pulled out their beards. Nehemiah 13, 25. He did that because he was irritated by the evil that they were doing. They were contradicting the Bible. And it bothered him that much. And then what about our Lord Jesus? What did he do? Twice in John chapter two and Matthew 21, and twice he went into the temple, he threw out the money changers, he confronted them and he overturned their tables and drove them out and drove out all their animals and everything else that they were doing wrong in the temple. And in John chapter two, he even made a scourge of cords. He made one. John 2, 13 to 25, we can read there, where he actually made one. It takes time. He has to be deliberate. He has to contemplate that he's going to go into that temple because he knows what's going on in there. He has to make this whip. He has to make it. He says, it says he made one. He made it so that he could use it in there to drive the rascals out. Because he knew the difference between good and evil. He would not tolerate it. That's the attitude that we need to have when, we, when Jesus says, watch out and make sure that whatever your intake is, it is light. And when you see darkness, be repulsed by it, be disgusted by it, have nothing to do with it, confront it as the situation demands and make sure that people know that you are on God's side and that they need to repent of their sins. Let's make sure that our eyes are clear and not dark. Let's only receive that which is true. Use the Bible as a filter and get rid of all things that are false. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.